got your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Judges chapter 3. It's in the Old Testament. Judges chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 12 through 30. Judges 3, 12 through 30. So it's a, so just give you a little, just a little setup and then we'll do more as we kind of get in. But, uh, Judges chapter 1 and 2 are the follow on to, uh, the book of Joshua. And so what we're getting is a, we're starting to get a look at kind of the second generation inside the promised land. And uh, chapters one and two set up for us that things are things are not well. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And um, but uh, in Judges three, we get the first three of the judges: Othniel. Now we get Ehud, and then the third one, which has just one sentence about him, is Shamgar. He would follow at the end of chapter three. We're going to look at Ehud, which is verses twelve to thirty. Let's read together. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way back those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us! And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from under his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, but the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him, and he locked them. And after he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. And they said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and they unlocked them. And there they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. And while he waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down 
with him from the, from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. And so they followed him down, and they took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, and they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Let's pray. Father, you tell us that that every uh, word in the Bible is your word, and it's for your people for a variety of reasons, all of them good. And so this morning, as we come to this on the eve, or on the heels of our celebration of Thanksgiving and looking forward to the Advent season, Father, I pray that you would speak to us from your word and you would allow it to penetrate our hearts, reminding us of how good you are in all ways, in Christ's name. Amen. So, venture guests, uh, Eglin and Ehud's probably not where you're spending your quiet times these days, right? My kids, uh, when they were younger, we would take uh, we would take various passages from the Bible and and um, we would act them out. And this was one of their favorites. Uh, they loved this one because it's full of intrigue and uh, excitement and a little bit of uh, left-handed humor. How many lefties do we have? Wow! Keep keep your hands up. I'm curious. One, two. They say about ten percent. Okay, there's ten of you. Um, that's actually going to be over. Larry, are you left? No. Okay, you're going to see that uh, we're going to discover as we kind of get in through here that, uh, that that's, a, it, that's an actual really important part of the entire story. But my kids love this story because it had a lot of action, had lots of intrigue in it. And, um, and as we look at it, um, it does. It's, it's intriguing. It's, it's, it's almost humorous. And that's intended. Um, it, it is part of the, it, it, you know, the the way it was written for us carries some of that. Um, now, Judges two kind of sets up for us. If you if you'll take your Bibles and look, you'll see at verse ten, the situation is is kind of this. After the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Okay, so that's. Joshua's generation, after they died, uh, another generation grew up. And that generation, neither uh, the Lord, they knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israelites. Verse 11, Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they forsook their God. And they intermarried and they mingled. And uh, part of the problem was that Israel had not successfully gone in and driven the inhabitants of the land out. And so they were residing. They were taking up residence. And, and their neighbors were, you know, the Hittites and the Perizzites and, and on and on. And so they, they had all of these neighbors 
that they were supposed to have driven from the land, and yet their kids were going to the same schools, if you will. That was the situation in the land. And um, and so they fall into this pattern. And, and the cycle in the book of Judges is that um, Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord hands them over to one of these groups, and they're oppressed. And in their oppression, they cry out to the Lord, and he raises up a judge who saves them. And that cycle repeats itself. And so you'll see at the beginning, it says again, verse 12, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave them over to Eglon, king of Moab. So let's uh, let's look at this. And I've titled the sermon, An Unexpected Thanksgiving. And we're just going to kind of follow that unexpected uh, trend through the book. The first thing that I want you to see is an unexpected oppressor, verses 12 through 14. Eglon is king of the Moabites. Now, if you go back and you look at chapters 1 and 2, and you see the inhabitants of the land, uh, the people that, that they're kind of cohabitating near and with and everything, the Moabites aren't even listed. And, and the reason that they're not listed is that they were east of the Jordan, and they, uh, as a people group, were not terribly threatening necessarily to Israel. These are the descendants of Lot. Abraham's nephew. So they weren't a people group that Israel would have been necessarily thinking, you know, hey, we need to, we need to watch out for those folks. And so it's, it's surprising. And if you're, if you kind of put your, your, um, you know, Jewish reading glasses on, this would have been unthinkable. Eglin, king of the Moabites? And, and the, the detail that we get is that He's a big guy, right? He's a large guy. And, and all the humor that kind of goes with that for this, for this story is, is intended. He's not the kind of guy that you're thinking to yourself, you know, he's not going to be out leading the charge of the Moabites and running and, you know, with his sword leading the, leading the, the warriors into battle. That's not the image that you get when you read about and you hear about this King Eglin. And yet, what do we read? We read that God allowed him to be raised up and that the Israelites were subject to him, verse 14, for 18 years. That's a long period. The period of Othniel just prior to this uh, that gave rise to Othniel as the first judge was only eight years of oppression. And so here are the Moabites. Now, granted, verse 13, he pulled in the Amalekites and he pulled in the Ammonites. Somehow he cobbled together this coalition and uh, and they were able to, to uh, go in and, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The city of Palms was Jericho. Now that's striking and interesting to us because if we kind of just think back on the book of Joshua, the city of Palms, Jericho, was the the first city that fell in Joshua's conquest. And so now that city has fallen. 
and it's fallen to Eglon, king of the Moabites. And, uh, and their sin has brought this punishment upon them. And for 18 long years, this king rules them. So, let's just, let's think of a parallel, right? Because you, you really have to get the sense, uh, for the Israelite reader. They're thinking to themselves, the Moabites? This would be like Costa Rica, okay, taking Florida and making, setting Miami up as his little, uh, kingdom, um, locale, right? Unthinkable. Costa Rica? We don't think about Costa Rica. They don't even have an army, for crying out loud. And so, for the Israelite reader, the Moabites coming in and taking the city of Palms and owning it for 18 years, and Eglin setting up his throne room there, is really unexpected. But that's the root, and that's the way things have gone. That gives rise to an unexpected hero, verse 15. In verse 15, we get the unexpected hero. Verse 15, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer. Ehud, a left-handed man. That is not a positive. (laughs) Sorry, uh, all you lefties out there. Um, All ten of you. It's not a positive in the story. It was, it's not a positive in the ancient world. Alright? To be left-handed was to be wrong. To be left-handed was to be, uh, subpar. Um, evil. Wicked. Typically, if you were wicked, you were, you were referred to as left-handed. Um, and that's been kind of the general sense of things for a long, long time with respect to, I mean, even in today's world, with only about roughly 10% of the population being left-handed, it's a right-handed world, right? I mean, we have a lefty in our house. Um, we know just how wrong she is. The scissors aren't made for her. The desk isn't made for her. The, the, the computer mouse is not made for her. Nothing, right? Everything has to be switched around. Um, and, and if you think in this day and age we're fairly sensitive to things like that, and it's still a right-handed world, imagine what it was in Ehud's day. He was a left-handed man in a right-handed world. The way the Hebrew spells it out, it's actually um, it, it, it's telling us that he was unable with his right hand. So, he had some sort of a deformity. Some, he, somehow his right hand didn't work. And because his right hand didn't work, he was a left-handed man. And that goes to the story, right? It goes to the story, and, it, and it, 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 it's part of the unexpected nature of who he is. He's, he is. he's a man whose right hand doesn't work. So... He's very limited with respect to what he can do and what it is believed that he can do. And so for him to be inserted into the story just tells us, tells us volumes about what's going on here. To add insult to injury, he comes from the tribe of Benjamin. And the tribe of Benjamin, that name, Benjamin, literally means son of the right hand. 
So here is a son of the right hand whose right hand doesn't work, and so he has to use his left hand, and he's the one that gets sent in to offer the tribute. And that gives rise to the third point, the unexpected assignment. And and the assignment is that he is going to bring the tribute to the king. Now, the fact that Israel, the Israelites, chose Ehud to take their tribute to the king tells you everything you need to know about the situation. They are basically kowtowing to the Moabites. Because what they're doing is they're sending in a man who is absolutely perceived as being no threat. He can't even use his right hand. And everybody knows that in order to be a valiant warrior, to be the right kind of guy, to be a leader, you got to have a right hand. And so they send Ehud in with the tribute. And that just... That, that's, that's just this huge signal, right? It's, it's the undercurrent of the story. Israel feels beat down, battered. They, they feel inferior. They're, they're scared. They're going in with their tail tucked between their legs. And so, in order to show that as a visual representation to, to uh, Eglon, the king of Moab, they send in Ehud. Right hand doesn't work. No threat at all. So he comes as the emissary bringing tribute to the king. Now all of that is just part and parcel of what happens, right? When Once, once the king would subdue a people, that people would, would sh- showing that they're bowing the knee, showing that they're going to be good subservient people and there's no need for any more of this killing and et cetera, et cetera. You go and you bring your tribute to him. And so the Israelites are sending their tribute by way of Ehud, the left-handed man, the son of a Benjamite. And that's who goes in. They picked him because they knew he would send a weak signal. It's, you know, it would be like, taking Dennis Rodman and sending him to North Korea to do nuclear... <laughs> Sorry, no. It's laughable. It's, just, it's a complete and utter joke. And yet that's what, that's what they did. And so they send him in, and he has an unexpected message. Now, this is where the story begins to really tune up for us. Because what we read is Ehud uh, went in, they presented the tribute, verse 17, to the king, who was a very fat man. And after he presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. Verse 19, but on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, your majesty, I have a secret message. So, the unexpected message. Here's the setup. The setup is they went in. There's the king. He's in his throne room, whatever that looks like that he set up there in Jericho. He has all of his attendants. They are essentially think bodyguards. They're there. That's that inner court, that inner circle to protect the king. Okay? With me? And so he goes in. He presents the tribute. 
He's everything that we've just talked about. He presents as a, as a, as a weak person, a, a weak emissary. They're done with the presentation of the tribute. They are on their way. Ehud sends his group one direction. He goes another direction. And when he reaches kind of the outskirts of town, he turns around and he goes back. And when he gets back, he essentially is saying to the king, I have a secret debar. That's the Hebrew word. And it it's translated as message, but it but really what he's saying is, I have a secret something for you. And uh, it widely just interpreted as like like a message. So you can imagine him going up to sort of whisper in the king's ear. But it really is, I have a secret something from God for you. And so he goes in, he tells him this. Now, at this moment... All of the attendants are there. And what does Eglin do? He dismisses them. That tells you, right, that just sends that. He he got the message. This guy's a weak ruler. He's absolutely no threat to me. And so he dismisses his inner court. And they all leave. And now it's Ehud and Eglin. And he approaches the throne to deliver the secret something, which we know, because we've read the story, is a knife that he has strapped to his right leg. Completely unexpected, right? And he goes in, and the secret message is, he pulls the knife out, he plunges it deep into Eglin's gut, he disembowels him, essentially. All of that comes out, and he leaves it. He just plunges the knife into him. He pulls his hand out. You read what's in the story. That's the picture. That's the secret message. That's the unexpected message that Ehud brings to Eglin. And that leads us to the next point, right? And that is the unexpected method. Because think about it. This is God's man for the job. And here here he is. This is the man that God has raised up and and typically what we find what the pattern in these stories of the judges is that the spirit of God rests on him and then he goes and he does whatever how you know however the story unfolds. We don't get that here but but he's clearly the man. And he goes in and he uses deceit. He uses trickery. He, uh, he fools the king. He, he, he's sly. He's, you know, all, all of, and we just imagine how, why, how, why would God use that man? And, and, and if you start thinking about it, I start thinking about people like Rahab, right? Here you have Rahab who becomes the savior of God's servants and she does it through lying. And, and, and she's often castigated for that, but the Bible doesn't say anything. We never get any indication that, that God looked disapprovingly on the way that Rahab went about the lies to protect the spies. 
And that gives rise to all kinds of questions. But you know what? The Bible doesn't deal with any of them. It presents for us the story. And the story is, in this instance, that every last bit of it was completely unexpected. Ehud, who would have thought? The Israelites didn't think. In fact, Ehud, it's not as if they expected it. Ehud goes back to Israel, and what does he do? He blows, he toots his own horn, okay? He goes back, he toots his own horn, they all show up, and he, he, he gives them the story. The Lord has delivered the Moabites into our hands. Let's go. And they're all thinking to themselves, Ehud? And he leads them into battle. And what do we read? They went down and they took back the city of Palms and they had 80 years of peace and prosperity. Now, if that doesn't cause your mind to jump a little bit and to start thinking, hmm, is that God's way? It is. Over and over and over in Scripture, that's His way. The unexpected, right? Until you get to God's man for the job. The person of Jesus. And what does Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians? That Jesus, the man Jesus, was a stumbling block. And what that means is that everybody tripped over him. They overlooked him. Uh, they didn't get it. They, they, they still don't get it, right? And, and the method of salvation, the method of God's saving of us, of his people, is completely unexpected. And, and by a man, no one anticipated. In fact, when, when people were being told, Pharisees and wise men and everything, they're being told about this one, and nothing good comes from there. And yet he did. And then the method, right? He didn't come as a warrior. He didn't come you know, riding the white horse. He, he will, but he didn't in his salvation of his people. Instead, he came and he told us things like this. If you want to change the world, you have to die. You have to fall into the ground. Unless that happens, you're nothing. And he told us things like, you have to be born again. Completely turning our idea of what it looks like to be a powerful leader on its head. He told us that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Everything that we know about the world tells us if we don't get in and get it and get it first, we won't get it at all. And Jesus came and He turned all of that on its head. And He lived and He died in a way that, that, that displayed to the world complete and utter weakness. When Jesus was on the cross and the soldiers, what were they doing? They were mocking Him. Look, if you're the Son of God, call legions of angels and they'll come and rescue you, right? And they laughed and they mocked. 
And all the while, Jesus was saving sinners from the wrath of God. Complete, unexpected Savior, which gives rise for us in a time like this of an unexpected Thanksgiving. He did it for us. He sent an unexpected hero into the world with an unexpected message to save unexpecting sinners from their sin. And that's what you and I get to revel in each and every Lord's Day. We get to come to stories of Eglin and Ehud, and we get to see in them reminders that's exactly the way God does it. He uses all of the unexpected things to bring about so great a salvation as you and I have. Let's pray. Father, thankful today for the story of Ehud and Eglon, an unexpected hero at an unexpected time. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity to worship today, for the unexpected nature of the salvation that you have brought to us. Father, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Teach us, Holy Spirit, to give thanks in and through all of life, to live with thankful hearts each and every day, with the person of Christ always before us. In His name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we sing uh, hymn number